Now we pray that was a special blessing to you this morning. Um, if you have your Sunday school quarterly, you can go ahead and be turning to your lesson. If you don't have one of your quarterlies there at home with you, we are going to be over in the book of Isaiah this morning as we continue our, our lessons on prophecy. Be in Isaiah chapter 49, starting at verse 1 this morning. And we'll look at verses 1 through 10, and then we'll skip down and look at verse 22. It's 40, Isaiah 49, 1 through 10, and then verse 22. And let's read through God's text this morning, where it says, Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from afar. The Lord hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother, hath he made mention of my name. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me polished shaft, and his quiver he hid me. And said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for naught, and in vain, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord, and my work with my God. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation at the end of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee. And I will preserve thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the, the desolate heritages, that thou mayest say to the prisoner, Go forth to them that are in darkness. Shew yourselves, they shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all high places. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them, for he that hath mercy on them shall lead them, even by the springs of water shall he guide them. Verse 22 says, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the Gentiles, and set up my standard to the people, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. As we look at the word this morning, and as we've looked the last several weeks at what God's word has to say for us, um, we are continuing this look at prophecy, but the last few weeks, we looked at the Israelite nation and what God's prophecy said about the nation of Israel. And if one did not uh, know better, he would almost think that you know maybe God's leaving everyone but Israel out of the equation. But we're seeing this morning that God has a plan not just for Israel, but a plan for the entire uh, human race. And as we look at what God says this morning and we look at, at the promises he gives us throughout the book of Isaiah, um, I pray you realize that our salvation is not just a, a national thing. Our salvation is not um, based upon anything else except for the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And our, our message this morning is called A Light for the Gentiles. And as we look at, we're going to see three different things about the Messiah this morning. That's really what Isaiah is talking about is the Messiah. And we'll, we'll explain it a little bit more as we get to our text and expound upon what it says. But as we look at what God said through Ezekiel and Jeremiah, 
he was giving a message to the captive. And we're talking about in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, this captive, this physical captive of the Israel nation. But as we see of what God is saying to the prophet Isaiah, he's speaking to people who is being held captive by sin. It is not a physical captivity, but it is a spiritual captivity. And this message went out a hundred years before the nation of Israel was actually held physically captive in the time of Jeremiah and the time of Ezekiel. See, the speaker calls for the whole world to listen in this first verse, which lets us know that he is not just the Messiah of the Jews. He is the Messiah of the entire civilization because he's not just saying, oh, listen, Israel. He's saying, listen, oh, isles, about islands that are off. I'm talking about uh, people of the world. He lets us know that this is not something that just happened to be. And a lot of times when people uh, talk about God and the way God operates, they talk about God like he's almost like a, you know, a teenager that's just sort of uh, doing things uh, rashly and not planned out and reactive all the time. When God in reality knew what was going to happen before anything for the world was even spoken into existence, none of this comes as a surprise to God. And the idea of a Redeemer in the form of Jesus Christ was, was planned out way before this world was ever even conceived and way before the first sin was ever committed because God knew that man was going to fail. And because God knew man was going to fail, God knew he would provide the way with the Redeemer, which we know of as Jesus Christ. And we see that in this first verse where it says, The Lord hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother. Hath he made mention of my name? God had this planned out from the beginning before Jesus was ever carried by Mary, before we had the immaculate conception that Jesus would be the one to redeem mankind. No one else, no other way, but all through Jesus Christ. You see, God was not shocked when the law wasn't kept, wasn't surprised. God was not shocked when Israel failed time and time again. And God was not shocked when you were born and was born to be a sinner. And when I was born to be a sinner, because we were all sinners by birth, by our nature, that we became children of God through His grace and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. You see, in verse 2, we see the power that rests in the Word. Because in Hebrews 4.12, the Bible says, For the Word of God is quicker and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You see, God is the one who gave Jesus power in the things that he speaks. God is the one who put the power of the Holy Spirit in the Word of God. If a man preaches anything of divine, of, of revelation that is not divine, there is no power within it. The words of men have no power. But the true power rests in the working of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works through the preached Word of God. Revelation 19.15 shows us that this is true all the way to the end when Jesus returns. And the Bible says, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress and of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. You see, the words that Jesus spoke, just his spoken word, had power because Jesus is God. As we see God in the beginning spoke the world and everything we see into existence, there is a time going to come when through the spoken word that Jesus speaks, he will set all things right and all things in order because of the power that rests in the word. 
You see, Jesus, is when he speaks of himself here, he's speaking from a human perspective. And he says that it is God the one, the Father God that gives him the power to speak as he does. And as you look at the New Testament, Jesus spoke in a powerful way because he could raise the dead with his speech. He could heal with his speech. He could cast out demons with his speech. And it was all simply by his spoken word that he accomplished this. Not only that, but we also see not only did God give him power, God protected him and concealed him until the time that God deemed as right. You see, the devil from the beginning in Adam and Eve, the devil was trying his best to stamp out that seed that would produce Jesus. We see uh, the devil trying to destroy the Israelites underneath the, the hand of the Pharaoh. And we see the devil trying to destroy the Israelites Oh, going all the way back to, to Adam and Eve or, or the time when Sarah's womb was barren. Uh, the devil was working and working and working. The devil is the one who led Hagar to Abraham or led Abraham to Hagar, should I say, that, uh, that made him have a child outside the will of God. But God sent his angels to ensure that Isaac would be born of Sarah and that God's lineage that was going to produce the Redeemer was still to come. You see, it wasn't by any sort of luck or circumstances or happen chance that that lineage continued on. It was all because the supernatural work of God, knowing Jesus would come from that seed of David, knowing that Jesus was needed to redeem mankind in the future, God not only empowered him, but God protected him, and God concealed him. All the years that Jesus walked the earth, there's plenty of years that Jesus walked that man had no idea that he was anything special outside the fact that he was intelligent. He knew scripture. Uh, he was a good teacher, a good master, a good rabbi, a good person. Then he began to work some miracles. But he's, he was not revealed in his fullness until we see him being revealed as the Redeemer that the Bible prophesies about as the Messiah that was to come. In verse 3, God refers to the Messiah as Israel since Jesus is the perfect example of what Israel was meant to be. It's funny when we look at Scripture, we see that God's plan for Israel was to bring glory to God, yet Israel failed over and over and over and over and over again. And we look at the church today, the, the, the Christian's true purpose is to bring glory into the name of the Father, but when we look at, at us, look at our lives, we fail over and over and over and over again. But thankfully, God gave us one that was perfect. God gave us one that is the perfect example of what Israel was meant to be. Because he lived that perfect, sinless life. That he done no wrong. And everything he done brought glory unto the Father. And it's funny uh, uh, how sometimes, even in the church world, we miss the point of why we're here. We think we're here to keep the numbers up. We think we're here to keep the offering up. We think we're here uh, uh, to, to, to bring glory to some denominational name. We think we're here uh, to bring glory to some religious leader's name. Uh, we think we're here to, to do all these things, uh, to, to promote political programs, to bring, or, or whatever. But the reality is the primary purpose of the church is to create disciples and bring glory to God. If we've missed those two marks, it don't matter how much other good things we do, we've wasted our time. 
Because that is the ultimate purpose of the church. Listen, well, sometimes I think we, we as Christians need to get back to what our original purpose was. We need to get back to bringing glory to the Father. We need to get back to praying disciples. And let this other junk simply recognize that, that some of it is just junk. And we need to let it go. If anything has good has happened for the church in this time uh, of, of isolation and quarantine, is I hope we've realized what's important. I hope we've realized that all these programs and all these things that we plan out and all these things that we, 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 we purchase and all whatever, it's all really good until it doesn't work anymore. And when you can't get people into a building together, 90% of them doesn't work anymore. And when, what does it fall back on? It all falls back on the Word of God. Because if you lose everything else, you still have the Word of God. And that's where the power rests. You see, in verse 4, we see even though that Jesus was fully God, we also see here that he was fully man, fully human. And when a lot of people get really tore up over verse 4, because they say, well, this is truly speaking of Jesus. Why does Jesus have this attitude? Because verse 4 says, Then I said, I have labored in vain. I spent my strength for naught in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with God. This truly shows the human nature of Christ. And it also shows that looking at your work and feeling that you maybe you didn't accomplish what God wants you to accomplish, it does not mean a lack of faith. It just means you, you really deep down inside wish you had done more. And Jesus was no different. Historically, from the perspective of the cross, it appears as that Jesus' life was a waste. He lived to be 30-some years old. He had a small following that all forsaked him when he went to the cross. Uh, even Peter, who was the most uh, outspoken of all his followers, denied him three times. They all went by the wayside. And here's a man who had traveled the earth, preaching he was the Son of God, and all this power he had, and now look at him on the cross. And to the whole world's perspective, he had failed. John 1, 10 through 11, the Bible says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. And we have to think about how sad that is from a human perspective. That the very people Jesus was closest to are the very ones who cast him out and deny him. We as Christians should not be real shocked when the people closest to us don't want to listen to us. Sometimes your family, your friends, your loved ones, your co-workers, uh, the people you grew up in church with even maybe, don't want to hear what you have to say. Don't feel like that makes you not effective or, or not being in the will of God because we look at Jesus. Jesus was perfectly in the will of God and yet his own people would not listen to him. They sent him to the cross of Calvary. They sent him to be crucified. Listen, no one may be listening to you right now. No one may be wanting to hear your ministry or support your ministry. It does not mean that God is not in it. It means there's trials. It means there's tribulations. If you follow the Holy Spirit of God, you can't go wrong regardless of who wants to listen. Because we, we in, in the Western world have equaled successful ministry to numbers for far too long. 
Because we look at so many people in the Bible that had such small group of followers, yet they are the very people that we look up to and celebrate in the Bible. You see, we, we were not designed necessarily to lead a group of 5,000. We may not even be, lead, be designed to lead five to Christ, but if you lead one to Christ, that's one soul that has its eternal destination completely changed through your ministry. That's a major impact. I'm not saying your goal should be one. I'm saying your goal should be to follow the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus even prayed from the cross, asking his father, why? Why did he forsake him? We truly see the human side of Christ here because Christ is wondering, did he not do everything right? It, why is, is it not seeming like things are working the way it is supposed to work? However, we see in the ending of this verse that he was not going to rest on man's judgment. He was not worried about pleasing man. He was worried about pleasing God. You and I should be the same way. It does not matter at the end of the day or even at the end of our years that if we have made mankind happy. Because I will tell you from personal experience, the more people you try to make happy, the more unhappy you will be. But if you have lived a life that has pleased God, when you go into eternity, you can go into eternity happy. Because you see, man's judgment is what gave Jesus the cross. But it's God's judgment that gave Jesus a crown. Mankind may give you a cross to bear. But if you are faithful, God will reward you at the judgment seat of Christ in crowns. We see in verses 5 through 10 the Messiah is the Savior. And in verses 5 through 6, the Messiah was formed to be the Father's servant to bring Israel to repentance and to revival. And we know that Jesus, that was part of the, the prophetic plan here. However, that is just one part of his ultimate mission because he's also to bring the gospel to the whole world. This is where you and I come in because I think probably about 97% of people listening right now are Gentiles. You see, this is done partially the preaching of the gospel. When the gospel is preached and a person comes to faith in Christ, then this mission has been partially accomplished. But if the gospel and the light is going to go out to the whole world, the question you and I probably have at this point is we're not seeing that impact that we see prophecy telling about. But the reason that is is we're not in that time yet. You see, we're in the church age right now. We're in this dispensation of grace. But while the gospel is going out and souls are being saved, we will see the fulfillment of all this in the millennium, in that thousand-year reign of Christ when he's going to come back and sit on the throne of David and rule and reign physically on earth for 1,000 years. You see, this verse makes it very clear that the servant cannot be Israel. The servant cannot be the remnant of Israel. A lot of people want to argue that. But if the servant was Israel... Israel cannot redeem Israel. A remnant of Israel cannot redeem Israel. It also can't be in the great prophets of the Bible. Because what prophet was perfect? What prophet was sinless? What prophet was offered up as a, a, uh, as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind? 
And the servant recognizes here where his true strength rests. You see, his strength, true strength, was not in his physical abilities. It was not in being a smooth talker. It was not in being extremely intelligent. His strength rests in God. Now, that's true for every, every, every servant of God, not just Jesus. In fact, the Bible says Jesus was actually pretty average in his appearance and his physical abilities. He wasn't really that special in his physical manliness. But it's in his divineness that we see his power. For you and I, as servants of God, as children of God, if we serve God and we're successful, it's not because of us, but it's because of God working through us. If one person comes to faith because of this message, it's not because of anything I've done, said, thought, or whatever else. It's because the Holy Spirit worked through it and let them to faith. If a, if a member of, of his church is lifted up, edified, it's not because of anything I've done, but it's because of what God done through the obedience. See, even with Cyrus, Cyrus's calling was to restore Israel to the land of Judah, but it was the Messiah, Jesus, whose job was to restore Israel and the Gentiles back to God. Yes, a time is going to come where these, these Israelites and the Lemur are going to go back to the land of Israel. But that's not the most important part of the picture. It is a, a snippet. The important part is being restored back to holy God. Because through sin, we're all cut off from God. And we have no way back to God. That's the scary part. It's not fearful to leave something unless you can't get back to it. The fearful part is we've left God through our sin, and in ourselves we have no way back to God, but through the sacrifice of Christ and the faith in Him, we have a way back to the holy, righteous God that we're talking about. We see down in verse 7 that the very one Jesus came to save would despise Him. But even with the hatred they had for Jesus, a time was going to come when they would turn and bow to him and recognize him for who he is. I don't know about you, but that's pretty powerful. Because the emotion of hate is very powerful. Hate can rob you of so many things, of joy, of a healthy relationship, of happiness, of satisfaction. And when you truly hate something, you pretty much murder it in your heart, the Bible tells us. But yet through the working of God, God was going to move on a way in these people's lives. That even though they hate Jesus, a time was going to come when they was going to turn to Jesus. You see, the scripture breaks down Jesus' ministry into two different categories. Talk about rejection and humiliation. When we see Jesus walking the earth, Realize he didn't do anything wrong the whole time he was here. Nothing. No sin. He done no one wrong even. Listen, he, he could have talked to those Pharisees like dogs if he chose to. But he didn't. Even when they deserved it, he didn't. He told them the truth, but he done it in a very classy, proper sort of way. But yet, when we look at the fulfillment of his ministry, he's humiliated. And when we look at pictures of a crucifixion, it really isn't as brutal in the pictures as what it really was. It was so much worse in reality. Because, you know, the picture of Jesus is wearing this little loincloth or whatever. No. 
He was stripped naked. He was had his flesh literally ripped from his body. More than likely, his faith would, face would not even be distinguishable by his own mother. He was beaten and bruised and destroyed so badly. He was spit on, had a crown of thorns set up on his head, pressed in, blood pouring, and he even had a sign placed up on his cross mocking him, calling him king of the Jews. He was humiliated. He was rejected by his own people. They, they took a murder of Barabbas over him. Even Father God turned from him at this moment. A man could not be in a lower state than what took place at the crucifixion. But this ain't the end of the story because in the future, the second part is going to be fulfilled. When we see acceptance and glorification. Because in the millennium, when Christ comes back and sets things right and Israel turns back to God, the very ancestors of those who, who, who rejected him, who denied him, are going to turn to him and glorify him and praise him and worship him. Him, the way he deserved in the beginning. The theologian Oswald says, to be chosen of God does not mean glory along the way, but it does mean glory at the end of the way. You see, a lot of times we think when God chooses us to do something, he's just going to start blessing us, it's going to be awesome, and we're going to be like one of these celebrities walking on the red carpet. That's not truthful, faithful service. In fact, a lot of times, Service involves hardship, sickness, um, destitute. I mean, it can, be, it can be rough. But at the end of the day, it's all worth it. At the end of the day, when we, when we go in front of God in eternity, knowing that we've done our very best to be faithful, there's a lot of glory in it. You see, the servant is assured that he would support and enable his, his servant. You see, God lets the servant know that even though it seems like he's not done enough, that God is going to assure that he will enable him to be successful. God tells us that he will make a new covenant with his people and the servant would fulfill God's covenant with Israel. You see, Jesus done all these things. And he speaks of the servant as the covenant, which means in order to be a part of the covenant, you must be in the covenant. So to be part of the covenant, receive the blessings of God, you must be in Christ. And we receive that by faith. And by receiving Christ by faith and becoming in Christ, we receive his blessings that is guaranteed through the covenant. And only guaranteed through a union with Christ when we become co-heirs, the Bible says, with Jesus Christ. The servant, or Jesus, will restore the land. He's going to take this planet that is very sick. And I don't say that just because of the current pandemic that's going throughout the land. I say it because look at, look at our nation. If, if you look at third world countries, there's, most of the world doesn't even have clean drinking water at this point. And it's all because of the pollution of man. It's not because of anything else. God didn't destroy it. Man destroyed it. 
And not only, I mean, not only that, but think of the sicknesses and the starvation and the suffering that's in this world. God is going to heal all that when this comes to be. He'll take the Israelites and inherit desolate areas and he'll free the captives. And again, this is all fulfilled in this millennial reign. In 2 Corinthians 6, 2, we see Paul referencing this day of salvation the Bible talks about. And Paul says, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And I want to speak just for a moment on this topic, the day of salvation. Because as we look at that word, Paul is using it very different than what the Bible is using in here in the book of Isaiah. And the reason Paul means the day of salvation begun at the cross, begun at the death of Christ. However, we see in the millennium, it come to a climax, come to the, the focal point. Because while the day of salvation began at the moment salvation was made possible through the crucifixion, we see the salvation of the world in the moment of the millennium, in that, that thousand year reign. You see, the salvation at that time involved setting the captives free, both spiritual and physical. Because during the millennium, God's sheep will enjoy feasting on areas that are formerly barren. God, through his son, Jesus Christ, is going to make sure that those who are set captive by their sinful nature will be set free when Jesus is on the earth and he is setting all things right. During the millennium, God's people will not go without because Jesus is the good shepherd. He's going to supply and protect. You see, we have a lot of people who are turning to Satan, turning to fall after the ways of the world, thinking that someone in the world is going to provide them with things. And for a moment they may. But why would you want that momentary satisfaction when you have eternal satisfaction through Jesus Christ? We see that God's people will not go without because he is the good shepherd. In verse 22, we find out that it will be the Gentiles that will assist in all this. You see, maybe you're a Gentile and think, wow, God has nothing really for me in prophecy. He saved me, but then what? Listen, you got a crucial point in all this. Because it's the Gentile people that will help usher all this in with Israel. They'll be the ones helping bring Israel to salvation. And not only did the the uh, the gospel go out to the Gentiles in the days of Paul, but it went out to all the children of the Gentiles after them, you and I. This morning the gospel is going out again. Because I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ did not die for just the Jews, just the rich, just the pretty, or just the good. Jesus Christ came to die that for whosoever will believe in him will not perish of everlasting life. That anyone has the opportunity of salvation. He provided he is the he is provide the way that we may have a way to God. The Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one can come to the Father but except through him. This morning the question I have for you is have you came through him? Are you in Christ? Have you been made born again? Because while the Bible talks for this great time for God's people during the millennium, we don't want to remain silent on those who reject Christ, but the Bible talks about them as well, that they will have their part in a lake of fire in the, second, in the judgment that is to come at the great white throne. 
You see, you will be eternally somewhere, either eternally rejoicing in the new heaven and new earth that comes after the millennium, or you'll be eternally dying in that lake of fire of hell forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Never ever being able to die, but eternally dying. You don't have to face that eternity today, regardless of what you've done, regardless of who you are, regardless of, of, of anything about you. You can be saved by simply putting your faith in Jesus Christ. As we close out in prayer this morning, if you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, I want you right where you are to simply bow your head and say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Lord, I need your salvation. Lord, I ask you to save me. I trust your son, Jesus Christ, paid the price for me. And I ask him to come into my heart and help me follow you, Lord. And if you pray a prayer like that, God will hear it. God will save you. God will record your name in that last book of life. He'll make you a new creature. So let's bow our heads and pray. Most kind, gracious, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for your, your grace and your mercy, Lord. We pray, Lord, this morning for those that have prayed that prayer of salvation. We pray, Lord, that they will take that step, step of faith and publicly confess you to the world, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would use this message in a mighty way, Lord, and help us be faithful to you, Lord. Help us, Lord, through these difficult times, Lord. We love you. We praise you for everything. In Jesus' name we pray. And amen. If you prayed that prayer of salvation this morning, we'd like to encourage you to send us a message on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, whatever. Email us. Call us. That way we could talk to you uh, about what that means, what the next step is after you've, you've chosen Christ as your Savior. Don't forget to come back and be with us tonight at 7 for evening worship. Thank you for tuning in this morning. God bless you. Love you and have a wonderful day. Isaiah this morning as we continue our, our lessons on problems.